So again, Jesus, the proxy of Israel. Uh, the word proxy is uh, uh, somewhat more of a legal term in our day. Uh, a proxy is a person who has the legal permission and responsibility to stand in for another person and to act on that person's behalf. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing for us in his baptism and temptation. On one hand, it, it might sound strange to use the word proxy in this context, but it is appropriate even as a legal term, because Scripture makes clear that our salvation is a legal matter. In the court of God, there is a contract or covenant to be fulfilled. There is a just penalty to be paid. And the end result is a legal declaration from God that those who trust in the work of Christ on their behalf are both forgiven and righteous before His throne of judgment. It's easy to, to lose sight of, but even words like redemption and propitiation and justification, these are legal words. It's only that we perhaps have heard them often enough in their theological sense that we might lose sight uh, of their legal significance. Of course, we need to be careful not to allow the legal use of uh, or the legal sense of salvation to distract us from the personal wonder and joy of the gospel. So consider a, a criminal standing in a courtroom. Uh, he is surrounded by the legal world. Uh, he has broken the law. He is appearing before a judge. Uh, there is a lawyer at his side. Uh, he is about ready to hear the judgment of the court and receive sentence. He cannot escape the legal context in which he stands. But if he hears the verdict of not guilty and the sentence of freedom, think of how his heart wells up within him uh, with joy and, and relief, even by way of the legalities that surround him. And this must be our experience, too, as we come to understand that Jesus is our legal proxy and that we are saved by him to the uttermost. So, on the other hand, the word proxy is just the right word to help us understand who Jesus is and what he did for us as he came into this world and completed his saving work for us. As Jesus is our proxy... It's because God the Father has authorized him and given him this assignment to step into the place of his sinful people um, and to serve as our proxy. So one clarification, that, that Jesus serves not as a proxy for God, but as our proxy. In fact, it was already made clear last time that Jesus is God he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, writes Mark. His coming into the world was marked by the same preparation that God required of His people at His coming upon Mount Sinai. Let, let that soak in. 
Jesus coming into the world was marked by the same preparation that God required of his people at his coming upon Mount Sinai. But now we need to, to see that he is our proxy. He is the one who has stepped into our place to do for us what must legally be done for our salvation. So to see Jesus as our proxy, let's first consider his baptism. First point, the baptism of Jesus. Because we have already been introduced not only to the divinity of Christ, but also to the baptism of John. Back in verse 4, Mark explains that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, need to undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? And in verse 5, Mark writes that the people were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is truly remarkable, maybe even quite confusing. Did Jesus need to repent? Did he confess his sins as he received the baptism of Mark uh, of John? Well, the answer, of course, is no, certainly not. But why then was he baptized? The point is exactly to see Jesus stepping into our place. We can see it best when we take note that here now, Mark identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. In the first verse, Mark introduces us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by which we do see the humanity of Jesus in the name Jesus. But otherwise, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, puts an initial greater emphasis on the divinity of Jesus by the word Christ, and especially uh, the title Son of God. But now in verse 9, the emphasis is on the humanity of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But Mark certainly expects us to remember his divinity as well. And although Mark himself doesn't say it, the point is most certainly to startle us. It's, it's an amazing moment to see the divine Son of God undergoing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism for sinners. Now, someone might say, well, maybe this proves that he wasn't divine, that he wasn't the Son of God. But that would obviously contradict what Mark has already said of Jesus. Could Mark be that silly to contradict himself so quickly after introducing Jesus as Christ, the, the Son of God? And it would also contradict the record of Jesus' miracles that Mark will soon give us in his gospel. So maybe the best approach for anyone in doubt is just to keep it in mind that Jesus underwent a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then, after seeing his miracles and hearing his teaching 
And by way of his resurrection in the end, one can look back at his baptism and understand better that when he was baptized, it wasn't for himself, but for me and for you, for us as sinners. Jesus was stepping into our place to be baptized as our proxy. And his baptism testifies to this understanding of his entire ministry, this perspective on what Jesus was doing in his ministry on earth. But another detail to his baptism is also important to see. Verse 10 uh, says that when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here the the careful reader will notice that we just heard something, did we not, about the Holy Spirit in the last passage? In verse 8, we hear John the Baptist testifying, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As much as some want to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit as signs and wonders and extraordinary manifestations, And while such things did happen in the early New Testament church, well, the point was made last time that the Spirit of God is most often in Scripture connected with the giving of life. That Jesus would baptize sinners with the Holy Spirit is best understood as Jesus giving life to dead sinners, as Jesus giving the new birth to those who must be born again if they are to see and enter the kingdom of God. And as Jesus bringing about salvation by even by way of a new creation. But now, while the outcome and effect of Jesus' work on earth would be to baptize sinners with the Holy Spirit, just a few words later, we see the Spirit coming upon Jesus in His baptism. It ought to be Another rather startling moment. And what is the significance? First, that Jesus was, in fact, without sin. Having submitted himself to be baptized by a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, God the Father immediately vindicates his Son. And so it shows that Jesus did not need to earn the Spirit for himself. Instead, as Jesus set out into his ministry, it becomes clear by the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him that he already had the Spirit for himself. Jesus had had nothing to earn, nothing to prove of his own innocence, of his own sinlessness. He instead had come as our proxy. He was instead stepping into our place as sinners but not as a sinner himself. Second, the significance of the coming of the Spirit upon him was that he was being identified as he truly was, the Messiah, the Son of God. In the Old Testament, both kings and priests were anointed with oil to mark them and to display the choice of God for a man to serve as a king or as priest. But all such anointing with oil was only a picture, a a foreshadowing of the 
anointed one. In fact, that's what the Hebrew word Messiah even means, anointed, even anointed of God. As a reminder, I trust, uh, uh, the Greek word Christos, uh, or as we say Christ, uh, is the same word in Greek as the Hebrew word Messiah. But either way, Christ and Messiah both mean anointed, and anointed to establish God's choice. So that Messiah means either and both anointed by God and chosen by God. But Jesus our Lord was not anointed with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And this shows us, as has been said, that it is sinners who need the Holy Spirit if they would be saved. New life, new birth, a new creation must come upon them if they would do more than just repent. If they would repent and believe to be saved, the Holy Spirit must come upon them. But Jesus had need of no such ministry. The Holy Spirit uh, was His. He came with the, the Spirit, and He came to provide the Spirit to give life to those who are otherwise dead in sin. And this we see further. As the Father declares from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. What a blessing for a father to introduce his son to others and for the son to hear his father say, This is my son. I want you to meet my son. And maybe earthly fathers don't normally uh, follow up by saying, With him I am well pleased. But what a blessing for a, a son to see that on his father's face. But God the Father makes, makes it clear with this declaration so that everybody might hear it. You are my son, my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The point was for everyone to hear it. The point was vindication. Jesus was doing what his father called him to do. He was stepping into the place of his people to serve as their proxy and to do so for their salvation. In the end, this too uh, ought to be noted that uh, here we have one of the most Trinitarian moments in the ministry of Jesus. All Scripture reveals to us one God who is three in person, But there are a number of passages like this one where we see the Trinity so very clearly. Here, Jesus, the divine Son, was coming up out of the waters of John's baptism. The Holy Spirit is descending upon him like a dove. And God the Father is speaking from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Next, for a second point, the temptation of Jesus. If there are doubters left that Mark is presenting to us and and proclaiming Jesus as our proxy, well, the story of Jesus' temptation should should put the matter to rest. Uh, Verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. To start with, why does it say that the Spirit drove him out? Again, we, if we consider the rest of Mark's gospel and, and then look back at this moment, it's, it's impossible to think that Jesus had to be driven out because he didn't want to go and otherwise wouldn't have gone if he hadn't been driven. The rest of Mark's gospel records for us a Jesus who submitted to his Father's will in every way. He even went to the cross in full obedience. And, and it doesn't say that the Spirit drove Jesus to the cross. So why does it say that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Mark's choice of verbs here is intentional. Because by saying that Jesus was driven into the wilderness, it takes us back to the story of the Exodus, and specifically to Exodus 11 and 12. Here we have the account of the tenth of the ten plagues sent by God upon Pharaoh to bring Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And it says in Exodus 11, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And Exodus 12, verse 31, recounts the fulfillment. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Israel was driven into the wilderness. So great was their salvation from God. Exodus 12.33 says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people and uh, to send them out of the land in haste. And verse 39 even adds that Israel was thrust out, was thrust out of the land of Egypt. But Mark tells us even more to help us see what was happening. And in verse 13, it says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The point is, is, is for us to say in response, Wow, that sounds an awful lot like Israel. How they, how they got into the wilderness. And, and, and about their 40 years in the wilderness. So what was happening? Jesus had stepped into the place of Israel. And he would now do what Israel had failed to do. The 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness are the 40 years of Israel. As Israel was tempted by Satan, falling to sin over and over, sinning, then repenting, sinning, then repenting, sinning, then repenting, Jesus instead would be perfectly obedient to his Father. He never grumbled as Israel did. He never rebelled against the rule of God as Israel did. He never questioned the purpose of God as Israel did. Jesus would obey 
and he would be sinless on behalf of God's people. And in the end, after his success, he would go to the cross to pay the penalty for their failure. Well, given that there are four Gospels, with Matthew and Luke also giving an account of the temptation in the wilderness, it, it makes it all the more conspicuous that Mark says uh, so little here. But what it does is to show us the significance of the event as a whole. There is much that we are taught by the details that Matthew and, and Luke add. But this time of temptation all by itself is significant. Jesus was stepping into the place of God's people. Jesus was driven into the wilderness as Israel was, and Jesus would do what Israel had failed to do. And so I I think by his brevity, Mark actually makes it more clear that this was not the only time of of temptation for Jesus. Yes, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but he was a man, a full human being like you and me. He lived a full human life. He faced temptations in every single day, just like us, and he did it for us. He lived a sinless life for us. To cover the details, the wild animals, well, I think simply it makes it clear that it was the wilderness, both for Israel and for Jesus. The angels make it clear that God did not just throw his people into the wilderness, leaving them to fend for themselves. The cloudy pillar, remember the pillar of fire, these were... These were, in a sense, angels. These were, these were the presence of God before the people at all times, leading them, assuring them that God is indeed with them always. And yet, Israel grumbled and sinned against God, even as he cared for them. And so the angels of God ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. And yet someone might say, okay, so Jesus stepped into the place of Israel... I see how it fits in the story, but what does that have to do with me? But we are Israel. The point of the Hebrew Scriptures as a whole is to teach us about ourselves. It's not just about the history of some ancient people called Israel. It's a picture of all mankind. When we see God's people obeying It's not wrong for us to see them as an example for us to follow. But what's the greater message? Not just to repent, as if righteousness before God can be ours if we just try harder. The message is to look for and and to long for the Savior whose coming is promised all along. The same Hebrew scriptures that make it clear how much trouble we are in because of our sin are the scriptures that issue the promise over and over again that a savior would come one would come who would be both god and man and that he would be our proxy he would step into our place and he would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves in order to be saved 
And Mark is writing his gospel in order to say, here he is. Here is your proxy. Here is your Messiah. Here is your Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last, then, is the proclamation of Jesus. Uh, Verse 14 reads, Now after Jesus was arrested, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First off, here's another place where we can recognize that Mark is likely writing to those who already have a a general knowledge of the story. After John was arrested, wait, what? What, 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 John was arrested? What, What happened there? Well, Mark doesn't go into those details because his focus is on Jesus and and the gospel, so that here we have the second and the third time that Mark uses the word gospel. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel and calling upon his hearers to repent and believe in the gospel. And there's the difference between the message of John and the message of Jesus. The message of John was repent because God is coming to walk among you. The message of Jesus was certainly to repent, but to repent even as you believe in Him for your salvation. The time is fulfilled, proclaimed Jesus to the people. So Jesus, like John, taught the people in light of the Hebrew Scriptures. Here is nothing more and nothing less than what God had promised for thousands of years. The time is fulfilled. It ought to make us think back even to the promise of God in the Garden of Eden. The seed of Eve would strike the head of the serpent, even as the serpent would strike his heel. We can remember God's promise through Moses. The the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. We can remember God's promise to David that one of his sons would sit forever on his throne. The time is fulfilled, proclaimed Jesus, in order to say, Here I am, as promised, to be your king, to be your prophet, and to be your priest in order to crush the head of Satan. And so the kingdom of God is at hand, Proclaimed Jesus, referring even to himself, so near at hand. The kingdom of God is, is one of those phrases, is it not, that, that sounds so religious, it sounds so theological, it's so spiritual, and, and we might just let it go at that. That's one of those, you know, Christian phrases, kingdom of God. But think about it literally, as we should. How do you see a kingdom? You can see a kingdom by seeing buildings constructed by a great king or by seeing the armies of the king arrayed for battle. Or if it's a good king, you can see a kingdom by seeing people living happily, contentedly, lives of peace and and freedom. But none of these things could Jesus have been ready to show the people. They were in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. 
The only soldiers around were part of the brutal Roman army that was oppressing the people. And and so they were not a people living happy lives of peace and freedom. And yet Jesus himself, the king, was standing in front of them and was walking among them. And he had come to save them. The kingdom of God was at hand. Finally, repent and believe in the gospel. Once again, the message is, is not that sin is of no or little consequence, that you know there's no need for repentance. In fact, the coming of Jesus only highlights how serious sin really is, that God Himself, in the person of His Son, would need to go so far as to become man and to suffer and die that there might be salvation for sinners. But, but the message is also that, that while God calls for repentance, He even requires righteousness. And where will righteousness come from? From more repenting? Well, thanks be to God, we have a proxy. We have one whom God Himself has provided for thousands of years. He was promised by God and expected by the faithful. Some 2,000 years ago, He came. And today the message that He Himself preached is still heard, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from sin and claim Him as your proxy. And as you do so, rejoice in Him. Rejoice that He is all you need for your salvation. Rejoice that you have Him as your own by faith. As your Savior King, He calls you daily to a a lifelong repentance, but He has not left you to be saved by your repentance. Instead, He has stepped in for you. He repented for you with a perfect obedience. He faced your temptation, and he remained sinless. And now he bestows his kingdom of everlasting blessing upon you. So repent and believe in this good news. Amen. Let us pray. Grant us to see the glory of Christ's coming, O God, our Father. By your Spirit, open our eyes to see the glory of Christ's coming. But as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, may we more and more see the glory of Christ in his fullness. All that he came to do, all that he was and is yet today, and all that is ours in him as we but believe in the gospel, trusting Christ as our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.